God, we thank you so much for, Lord, a place to gather, Lord, a place to link arms with other followers of Jesus and to be able to come to this place knowing that all of us have burdens on our hearts or all of us have things that uh, we want to bring to you even this morning, whether they're doubts, whether they're temptations, whether they're hardships, Lord, whether they're just questions that, Lord, we are confident that you are more than able to handle. God, we know that you're more than able to handle them because Jesus did something 2,000 years ago that has changed our lives. He not only defeated sin, but he has shown us that if he can deal with our sin, he can deal with our burdens today. And so God, I pray as we talk a lot about the gospel today, Lord, I pray that you would renew our passion for it, renew our love for it. Lord, help us to worship you even as we think and talk about what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Like many of you uh, with small children, uh, Play-Doh was a go-to activity throughout 2020 uh, as we spent a lot of time at home. Uh, Play-Doh was a really fun activity to kind of do with our kids while we spent a lot of time together last year, and it brought out our children's creativity. Uh, My oldest uh, loved playing with Play-Doh and loved to utilize uh, the different Play-Doh tools and utensils. Uh, she loved the, the cookie cutter mold and, and the presser, and, and she got really good at it. She could take the, the Play-Doh and she could, uh, you know, make cookies out of it and hand them to me or flowers. Or, you know, one time she made uh, our family with stick figures and, and it looked really good. Our, my other daughter, who's a little bit younger, um, she's still kind of figuring things out. She actually would rather eat the Play-Doh uh, than, than make something out of it. And so she one time handed me the Play-Doh and said, hey, Daddy, this is you. I made you. And it's just like this lump of Play-Doh with no shape at all, thinking, man, did I, did I gain some weight over quarantine or what? But there was, there was no shape. It was just kind of like this blob uh, of Play-Doh. And I share that with you this morning because I want to suggest to you that if our lives are like Play-Doh, then you fall into one of two categories, that either your life is being shaped by the gospel or it's not. That your life is either being molded and pressed and fashioned by the gospel like a kid playing with Play-Doh or it's not. And if it's not, then it's most likely being shaped by other things. That you might know the gospel, you might believe the gospel, But maybe there's a disconnect between understanding that the gospel, yes, it saves you, but the gospel also shapes how you live your life every day. That's why we're taking a break in 1 Corinthians over the next couple of weeks, because I want to look at this topic of what it means to be shaped by the gospel, which is one of our church core values. We're taking a break from 1 Corinthians, not because I need a break from talking about church discipline and sex and marriage and divorce, but because I am confident that there are so many things in this life that are wanting to shape how we live. The entertainment world is wanting to shape how you live. Politics is wanting to shape how you live. The media is wanting to shape how you live. The American dream, social media, the relationships that you, that you have, that you, your career, your, your money, all of these things want to grab hold of your desires, want to inform what you believe, and they want to direct how you live your life. And if we're not careful, we can allow all of those other things to become central in our lives. 
Look, if 2020 taught us anything, it has taught us that that is so true. Man, 2020, there were so many things that came to the surface that was wanting to shape not only us as individuals, but also the church. And so we're taking the next couple of weeks and we're going to be looking at what does it look like for a life that is so saturated with the gospel that their very living is gospel shaped. Now to be shaped by the gospel means that the gospel is informing what you believe. The gospel is determining your priorities. The gospel is forming your desires and the gospel is also motivating your behavior. The gospel is not just something that impacts your eternity. It's not something that you just believe and this is your ticket to get into heaven, but the gospel has a power that is to be lived out every single day as we're conformed into the image of Jesus. John Piper describes it this way. He says that the gospel creates something altogether different in the world today. It creates churches that are God-exalting, Christ-admiring, spirit-filled, Bible-enjoying, grace-preaching, convenience-defying, cross-embracing, risk-taking, selfishness-crucifying, gossip-silencing, prayer-saturated, future-thinking, outward-reaching, and beautifully human congregations where the undeserving can thrive. That only God can make those kinds of communities, and he does so through the gospel. Look, I believe that this occurs when you know how to do three things with the gospel. You know how to adore the gospel, you know how to articulate the gospel, and you know how to apply the gospel in every area of your life. So we're going to look at one, uh, each of those three things over the next couple of weeks, how to, how to adore the gospel, how to articulate it, and how to apply it. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first one here, gospel adoration from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I think Paul's going to help us with a couple of steps in cultivating this type of adoration for uh, the gospel, or more specifically, for the God of the gospel. Okay, so three steps towards gospel adoration. Here's the first one, is that you have to know the contents of the gospel. You have to know the content of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, the gospel has become kind of the, the junk drawer of Christianity, right? You know the junk drawer, you probably have one in your dresser at your home where uh, this is the drawer where everything kind of gets thrown into because you're not sure where else it's supposed to go, right? So that drawer is filled with all kinds of, of random items because you don't know where else you should put them. Well, this can happen even with the gospel, that we can take different aspects of the Christian life and say that's part of the gospel. We can take marriage and sexuality and politics and social justice and pro-life and community and missions or whatever else you're passionate about, and we can label it as the gospel, the problem with that and the danger is that if the gospel is everything, then it is nothing. And I think we need to understand that while the gospel impacts every area of our lives, there is a difference between the content of the gospel or the message of the gospel that saves and then the implications or the applications of the gospel that then shapes our behavior. 
We're going to tease that out over the next couple of weeks, but I want to start with the content of the gospel this morning, and I want to begin by asking you the question, how would you define the gospel? All right, where, where would you start? Well, what needs to be included in explaining the gospel that would actually lead someone to salvation? Right? Do you know how to answer that question? This is probably the most important question that you must know how to answer. Not only to become saved, but you need to know how to answer that question when the opportunity arises with your neighbor who asks you about salvation or about matters related to Christ. You need to know how to answer this question when you're talking to your coworker about Jesus. You need to know how to answer this question when you're engaged in a conversation with your friend and there's an opportunity to talk about the saving work of Jesus Christ. You need to know what the gospel is as you're caring for your aging parents. You need to know, mom and dad, how to answer that question as you're trying to explain the beauty of the gospel to your children. Spouses, you need to know what the gospel is to remind your spouse of the gospel on a daily basis. Look, this is one of the most important questions that you must know how to answer. And unfortunately, I'm becoming more and more convinced that most Christians like the idea of the gospel, but they don't know how to articulate or define the gospel. And I think this is where Paul becomes really, really helpful, especially in verses three and four of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses three and four, I think, contain one of the best summaries of the gospel throughout the New Testament. Look at it with me. Verse three, he says, for I delivered to you, talking about the gospel, what was of first importance, what I also received. Now he's gonna explain it here. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So succinct, so helpful in talking about the gospel. And I love where Paul begins. Paul starts with Christ in explaining the gospel. This is where you gotta begin because if you get Jesus wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. You get Christianity wrong. Just to illustrate that for a moment, let's say that you find yourselves in Target later this week and someone stops you at Target and somehow they're able to recognize you with the mask on, but they, they recognize you and they're talking to you and they say, hey, weren't you at Pennington Park Church last Sunday? And you say, yeah, I was. Yeah, I heard Chris Beals preach. And this individual says, oh yeah, yeah, we were there too. He's, he's that tall, 6'6", bald, older preacher, right? In that conversation and in that moment, you would confidently conclude that you must be talking about two different people, right? Now, now, why is it so easy to conclude that with that example? And why is it so difficult to apply that to Jesus and how people talk about him out in the world? See, so many people out in the world want to describe Jesus and define Jesus however they want to. That people out in the world will say, uh, Jesus wasn't fully God. He was just a really good teacher. All right, he taught really good principles about how to love each other, and, and he was all about grace. That, that's, he wasn't really God, though. Or some will describe Jesus as, as being just a really nice guy. 
He doesn't really care about your sin. He's, he's maybe okay with it. I mean, he's so gracious and so loving. Or some will say that Jesus really just wants you to be happy. I mean, Jesus is basically just a, a cosmic genie who exists to serve you, right? People are, are constantly defining Jesus however they want to. And yet to get the gospel right, we have to get Jesus right. And so do you know what the Bible says about Jesus? That in summary, what the Bible says about Jesus is that he's fully God and fully man. And Jesus is the eternally self-existent second member of the Trinity, the son of God, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, died on the cross, rose again three days later, then ascended back up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for Christ followers. Like you gotta understand the identity of Jesus before you understand what he actually accomplished. And so Paul starts with Christ, but then he goes on and he explains what Jesus did. Notice he says that Christ died for our sins. Now, there's so much in this phrase, and I would argue that in order for the gospel to be good news, which that's what it means, good news, you have to understand the bad news first. And the bad news is that you and I are sinners. You and I, we, we all have committed this cosmic treason against a holy, eternal God. And the Bible says that because of our sin, we have consequences to that. We, we have a punishment that because it's against an eternal God, we have eternal consequences. And the Bible describes that as eternal separation from God in hell forever. Look, that's our punishment. That's what you and I deserve. That's the price that we should pay. And look, quite frankly, that's the burden that we cannot carry. And I want to stress that this morning because I want us to feel the weight of our sin today because we have to start there if we're going to adore what Jesus actually accomplished. See, sometimes when we're thinking about the gospel, we want to skip right over and get to the cross, get to the resurrection. And yet we've got to understand our utter hopelessness apart from Jesus in order for the spirit of God to produce this awe and this worship of all that Jesus accomplished. I love how J.C. Ryle explains this and the role of the cross in this way. He says, I look at the cross of Christ. There I see that sin is so bleak and damnable that nothing but the blood of God's own son can wash it away. There I see that sin has so separated me from my holy maker that all the angels in heaven could never have made peace between us. Nothing could reconcile us short of the death of Christ. If I listened to the wretched talk of proud men, I might sometimes fancy that sin was not so very sinful, but I cannot think little of sin when I look at the cross of Christ." Look, when there was nowhere else to turn, when we had no other answer for our sin, Jesus stepped in. And Paul says that Jesus died for our sin, that Jesus was our substitute, that Jesus took the place of sinners on the cross and he accomplished 
something. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice so that God can justly forgive. Look, that's really significant because God could not just snap his fingers and just forgive us of our sins. He's just. There had to have been a punishment for our sin. And that's what Jesus stepped in and that's what he took. And look, we, we didn't deserve this. Like we didn't, we didn't deserve Jesus to go and take our place on the cross. We, 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 we didn't commit good works to earn this. This is something that Jesus did, the Bible says, when we were his enemies, when we were objects of his wrath, Jesus stepped in and he died the death that we should have. He took our sin upon himself and he absorbed all of the wrath that should have been laid on us and he died in our place. That 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Look, church, that is the wonder and that is really the scandalous gift of grace found in the gospel. It's this great exchange that took place on the cross of Calvary between Jesus and those who put their faith in Jesus. There was this transaction that happened where Jesus takes our sin, takes our penalty, takes our guilt, and in exchange, he gives those who put their faith in Jesus his righteousness, his holiness, his perfect standing before God. That's the great exchange. And that's so significant because you're not just saved because Jesus took your sin and your penalty. That, that, that's not the only thing that, that allows you to experience salvation. You also have the gift of Jesus's righteousness that's been transferred over into your account. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't just see that your sin has been paid for, he sees Jesus's perfect righteousness, which meets his own standard. Look, you're, you're hidden in Jesus, according to Colossians 3. And so when God looks at you, he sees you hidden in his perfect son and accepts you and loves you with an eternal love. Like you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son through Jesus dying on the cross. Well, Paul goes on and he says that Jesus was then buried and then he raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures, meaning this was God's plan A. This isn't God's plan B, but this is a, a plan he set in motion before the foundations of the world, sending his son but notice that Paul talks about the resurrection here. And this is important because a dead savior is no good savior. Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again three days later, giving proof to his victory. And, and we're going to be celebrating this in a couple of weeks. But if you don't mind me talking about the resurrection here this morning, this is everything for us. That Jesus' resurrection is the cosmic announcement that Jesus holds the power not only to defeat our sin, not only to defeat our enemy, not only to defeat the grave, but Jesus holds the power to make all things new. That Jesus holds the power to make your life new by his grace. 
And so look, I want to declare to you this morning that there is no one who is too far gone to be saved because of the resurrection. That Jesus's power is endless. It is matchless. It is boundless because of what he accomplished. And so look, there is no sin that is too great for God not to forgive. There is no such thing as a sinner who is outside God's ability to adopt into his family because of the resurrection, that Jesus stared death in the face and he conquered it once and for all. Look, the gospel is good news. This is, this is life-changing good news. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not having the ability to turn over a new leaf so that we can now try to, to please God on our own. The gospel is not about behavior modification as if God's only concerned about us performing for him. No, the gospel is the power of God who takes the sinners who are dead in their trespasses and he makes them alive together in Jesus because of what he accomplished. And look, church, you've got to know the gospel if you want to adore the God of the gospel. And so we start there. Second step I want to suggest to you this morning of how to grow adoration for the gospel is you've got to regularly rehearse the gospel in your life. Notice what Paul says in verse one. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Isn't that interesting? Why does Paul have to remind the Corinthians of the gospel? I thought that they were already saved. I thought the gospel was just to get us into heaven. Why is he reminding them of the gospel? It's because you and I tend to forget the things that we should remember, and we tend to remember the things that we should forget. And as a result, each one of us, we are prone to drifting away from the gospel. One of my favorite activities when I'm at the beach is body surfing. Now, I'm not a great body surfer at all. I just like being in the water. And I remember this one time I was out there with my father-in-law uh, in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And the waves were so perfect this one day. We were out there for hours. And at one point, we looked up at where we thought we had placed our stuff, and it wasn't there. Our, our, our beach chairs and our towels and our belongings. And we look at each other like, where did it go? Did someone take it? And, and then we realized that the waves were such that we had drifted away from where we began. And we were so thankful to have noticed that when we did, or else we would have been totally lost. But man, if we just would have remembered to look up every once in a while at where our stuff was, we would not have drifted as far away. Look, I think that's a picture of what many Christians tend to experience when they fail to regularly look up away from the waves of their circumstances and they look up and they remember and they rehearse the gospel. That through hardship, through temptations, through distractions, through busyness, through just life, there, there's a drift. And you might still be in the ocean of Christianity, 
But because you're not regularly looking up at the gospel of Jesus and rehearsing it and recalling it to mind, there's a drift that starts to occur. We're warned of this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, referring to the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Let me read that again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention, not just attention, but closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Look, the reality is, is that when you recall and remember your past sin and shame more than the gospel, you will drift away. When you recall and remember more the, the size of your hardship, more than the power of the gospel, you will drift away. When you recall to mind and remember your weaknesses and your insecurities and, and your inadequacies more than the gospel, you will drift away. Therefore, we need to remember and remind ourselves of the gospel. But not only do we tend to drift away from the gospel and thus need to regularly rehearse it, but I think we also need to be aware of the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity is, is equating just being aware and familiar with something with automatically being changed by it, right? And this is a subtle danger, but just because you know the gospel, just because you can even articulate the gospel, just because maybe you're around the gospel every single week does not automatically mean that you have been changed by the gospel. I mean, how many times have you opened up the Bible and you've gone to a particular passage or you've heard a sermon on a particular passage and you've said something to yourself that goes like this, oh man, I've already, I've already read this. I, I already know what this means. And that sense of openness, of wanting to grow, wanting to learn has been closed up because you're familiar with the passage, but maybe you haven't been changed by it. I wonder how many of us, just to be honest, I wonder how many of us heard that we're doing a sermon series on the gospel and you said to yourself, man, why are we, why are we talking about the gospel? It's so basic. Like, let's get back to 1 Corinthians. That's where the meat is. And yet the challenge is, is that you may know what the gospel is, but have you been changed by it? Is the gospel just a religious idea or symbol, or is it the source of your life? Because the beauty of the gospel is that we never outgrow our need of daily immersing ourselves in it. And I wonder if you've lost your excitement over the gospel, if you are borderline bored of the gospel, I wonder if you are in need of a gospel awakening in your heart to rehearse it on a daily basis. In his book called Gospel Wakefulness, Jared Wilson provides a different signs that the gospel has become more assumed in your life than it is uh, for you to adore the God of the gospel. He's got this long list, but let me just uh, share a few of them. You know that the gospel is more assumed than adored when number one, the gospel doesn't interest you. Or if it does, it doesn't interest you as much as other religious subjects. 
Or number two, you take nearly everything personally. You're easily offended. Or number three, you frequently worry about what other people think. Or number four, you treat inconveniences like minor or major tragedies. Or number five, you are impatient with people. Or you have great difficulty forgiving others. Or you're told frequently by those close to you that you're too controlling or too anxious. Or you think someone besides yourself is the worst sinner that you know. Look, if some or most of these resonated with you, I, I wonder if you could be helped today to begin instilling a daily rhythm of rehearsing the gospel anew. Look, and the reality is, is that we need to rehearse the gospel, not just because we drift away from it and not just because we become too familiar with it, but sometimes we just struggle with unbelief. Right, Jeff Vanderstelt, who wrote a terrific book called Gospel Fluency, says, I slip in and out of believing God's word about me and trusting in his work for me. Jesus gave his life to make me a new creation. He died to forgive me of my sins and change my identity from sinner to saint, from failure to faithful, from bad to good, and even righteous and holy. But I forget what he has said about me. I forget what he has done for me. And sometimes it isn't forgetfulness. Sometimes it's just plain unbelief. I know these things, I just don't believe them. I am an unbeliever. Not every moment, of course, but I have those moments, and so do you. I'm certain of it. Look, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel because of these three struggles that we tend to have, but also we need to remind ourselves of the gospel because of verse two, that in order to, uh, to take a stand on the gospel, to hold fast to the word of the gospel, to not believe in vain, we must regularly rehearse it. This is the means by which we can remain faithful to the Lord. And so what does this look like practically? Well, I think practically it is on a daily basis, being intentional about cultivating this rhythm of flooding your heart with gospel truths. It's by taking these aspects of the gospel because of what Jesus has accomplished and preaching them into your heart, taking these realities that, that you belong to God forever, or you are forgiven, or you have been made righteous, or you are eternally loved, or there is now no condemnation over your life, or there's no separation from God's love. It's taking all of these truths and flooding our hearts with them. And when you do that on a daily basis, just intentionally basking and the glorious truths of what Jesus has accomplished, you are able to walk through your day and identify and denounce the false gospels that are constantly coming at you. We are constantly being bombarded with these false gospels from the world, from our flesh, trying to convince us to live by that narrative instead of what Jesus has proclaimed over our life. And look, I don't know what your false gospels are. I know for me, a false gospel that regularly tempts me is that my worth is found in what I accomplish. That that false gospel hits me in the face right when I walk up and wake up in the morning and it stays with me throughout the day. That my significance 
is found in what I do. And that's a false gospel because what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus did for me, that is where I find my worth. That is where I find my significance, that I have been adopted into God's family. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you struggle with finding your significance in what other people think of you. Maybe a false gospel is that because of your past, you now need to try to, uh, to make amends by that in your own good works. And so you're trying to earn God's favor in your own spiritual performance. But look, daily reminding yourself of gospel truth will enable you to recognize and to denounce those false gospels that come at us. Look, so often we view the gospel as just the basics of Christianity. Like this is just Christianity 101, let's get to the meat. But look, oftentimes we grow not by moving beyond the gospel, but by going deeper into it. And we do that by daily rehearsing it. Well, the third step I wanna share with us this morning to create a gospel adoration is to prioritize the gospel as the highest treasure. Notice in the beginning of verse three, Paul says that he delivered the gospel to the Corinthians and it was of first importance. I've got that underlined in my Bible because look, there are a lot of great things that Paul taught about, a lot of amazing things that he wrote about. But what Paul claims here is of first importance, meaning the highest priority, the, the greatest treasure is the gospel. And you will never adore the gospel until it is your greatest treasure. There's a story that's recorded in Luke chapter seven. It's one of my favorite stories. Luke records this scene in which Jesus is having a dinner with a bunch of religious leaders. A lot of uh, prestigious religious leaders at the time, Jesus is having this meal. And then there's a knock at the door. There's an interruption that occurs. There, there's a woman there, and Luke describes her as a sinful woman, most likely referring to this woman being a prostitute, who interrupts this dinner meal, approaches Jesus, and she's so broken over her sin, she collapses at Jesus' feet and she begins to weep uncontrollably. And then she, she takes her tears and she takes her hair and she starts to, to wash the feet of Jesus in this powerful scene in the midst of all of these religious leaders who are just judging this woman. And she doesn't care about any of that. She just cares about Jesus. And she's so broken over her sin. She's worshiping and she's adoring Jesus. In that moment, Jesus then begins to share a story with the religious leaders. He tells them that there was a certain money lender who had two great debtors. And, and one debtor had a massive debt, and then the other one had a smaller debt. And Jesus says that in this story, the, the moneylender forgave both debts, erased both of them. And then Jesus looks at them and says, now which of the two debtors do you think loved the moneylender more? And the religious leaders answered correctly. They said, well, it's the one with the greater debt. And then in Luke 7, verse 44, right after that, it says, then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, all right, Jesus is staring at the woman, saying to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Look, I'm convinced that until you get to the place in your life with Jesus, where you simply cannot get over the fact that your sins are forgiven, all of your sins, your past, your present, your future sins, your small sins, your big sins, your known sins, and your hidden sins are forgiven, then adoration for God will only be manufactured and it will not be spirit-produced. But the inescapable truth is this, is that what you value most is what you worship and what you adore. And the question I have for you today, is Jesus your highest and greatest treasure? Is Jesus what makes your heart sing more than anything? Is Jesus what 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 has captured your longings and your desires more than anything in this world. Look, do, do you love Jesus because he has erased your debts, the debt that you owe, the debt that you could not pay? Look, you need to understand that it's only through Jesus that verse 48 can be spoken over your life. It's only because of Jesus that you can have those words declared over your life that your sins are forgiven. And until you get to that place, there will never be lasting, genuine adoration to God. And I wonder if you're struggling to adore Jesus this morning. I, I wonder if your heart is, is divided. I wonder if you have different allegiances within your own soul. In fact, Ray Orland describes this powerful scene in in his book. He says, our hearts are multi-divided. There's a boardroom in every heart, big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. A committee sits around the table. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. The truth is, we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. That kind of person can accept Jesus in either of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee, give him a vote too, but then become just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, 
My life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It is also subtracting our idols. Look, this morning, and I'll close with this. If the good news of Jesus doesn't make your heart sing, I wonder if you have received him by faith. I wonder this morning if you have reached that moment in your life where you have placed your trust upon Christ to save you from your sins, not your own performance, not trusting in anything else, but fully upon Jesus. And have you made him king over your life? Have you fired your committee? And does Jesus reign supreme? Look, if you haven't made that decision in your life, but there's something prompting you in your heart right now, look, I wanna invite you. I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll be down here in the front. We also have a group of leaders at the Next Steps table that would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you haven't made that decision, look, don't leave today without responding to the gospel of Jesus that will change your life forever. Look, the gospel is not just something to be believed. The gospel is something to be adored. And we do that by knowing it, by rehearsing it, and by treasuring it above all else. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you that our debt has been paid, Lord, that we are freed from sin because of Jesus. God, help us never to get over the beautiful and powerful good news of Christ. I pray that it would capture us again and again and again as we wake up each morning. Renew that within us. Lord, I pray for those in this room or those who are listening who have not given their lives fully to you. God, would you save them? Would you open up their eyes to seeing the beauty of Jesus? And would you call them to believe? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.